0: You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Good morning, everybody. Can I add my welcome to that of Emily's? Uh, my name is John. i uh, here with my family today, Lorena and Michael. Uh, wife, son, just to clarify... Uh, We've been part of City Church for around 12 years now, and it's a great privilege to be able to share with you this morning from uh, the book of 1 Peter, which we're going to be turning to in a short while. But before we do that, could I encourage you please to stand up? So, uh, after telling you to sit down, you can now stand up. This will be the last directive action during this message uh, once we're done with this. But we're going to say a few words together, which are going to come up uh, on the screen. We are pilgrims in a strange land. We are so far from our homeland. With each passing day, it seems so clear. The world will never want us here. We're not welcome in this world of wrong. We are foreigners who don't belong. Brilliant, thank you. Uh, I hope that was enlightening and refreshing. Please take a seat. Anyone able to place that? I was thinking somebody like Paul might uh, might have a, have a sense. No, I'm showing my age over here. That was the first verse of uh, Christian rock band Petra's classic 1983 track, Not of This World, a mere 40 years ago. <clears throat> <clears throat> I am convinced that to some degree every one of us knows the experience of not belonging in some Way, shape, or form, that sense that somehow you are different from the people around you, whether that's the experience of being a, a, a child sort of relegated to the children's table and having a slightly different meal than the adults uh, at some outing, or maybe it's the experience of moving school or city or, or even country. Um, Lurian and I moved here 16 years ago uh, from South Africa, and even though I come from an English speaking former British colony and raised by a, South, uh, by a British father, That was an adjustment for us. It was quite different. We have the privilege of having some people in this community who have come from a context even further removed from 21st century or people who speak different languages to us, people who eat strange and exotic foods and aren't familiar with our cultural norms and our customs in the UK. And I'm not naive enough to think that everybody in our city is really pleased to have them here or thinks that they belong. And I'm sure at many stages they feel like they are out of place in 21st century York. But no matter how strange our Iranian and Syrian and Afghan and Ukrainian and African and Asian friends are from your typical Yorkshireman, they are still closer culturally to us as brothers and sisters in Christ, than any of us are to any unbeliever born and bred in this city. What do I mean by that? I mean that all of us who have committed ourselves to Christ have become foreigners where we live. This is not our homeland. This is not where we ultimately belong. No matter how much we kid ourselves otherwise, we're not welcome here any of us we live here as people in exile longing for a kingdom in which we truly belong to be fully realized now the author of one peter uh, probably somebody close to the apostle peter writing on his behalf under his direction understood this as he writes to christians in asia minor modern day turkey around the black sea today sorry no maps today we had that last week Uh, And the second half of the first century AD addresses them as exiles in the first chapter of his letter. And it might be easy to see that as some sort of shameful identifier. Maybe think of the word homeless, which might have connotations uh, of a certain uh, level. It's not like that at all for us as Christians, as believers more correctly understood, Peter's writing to us and addressing us and addressing his hearers as, uh, as exiles is a picture of us belonging to Christ, and it should be a tremendous source of encouragement and hope for us. So why don't we read what Peter has to say in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles with you or a device, feel free to follow along. The words should come up on the screen. Uh, we did six verses last week. We're going to skip a few verses ahead to verse 17 this week it says if you invoke as father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds live in reverent fear during the time of your exile you know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors not with perishable things like silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without defect or blemish He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him, you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are set on God. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. Sadly, in my opinion, uh, 1 Peter is often overlooked in the Western church in favor of the Apostle Paul's letters when it comes to theology. But just going through that, there is a richness, there is a profound depth in these verses to rival anything that Paul writes when we look at it closely. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at it closely, spend a little time picking it apart verse by verse. Verse 17, it says, If you invoke as Father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. So, if you remember, Peter is writing to uh, a group, an audience of Christians who are suffering from various persecutions uh, and and, and trials where they live, probably as like second-class citizens. It's entirely possible the Christians in these communities were being hauled before secular judges who would not be treating them with impartiality, who would have an agenda against them. They could justifiably be concerned with some sort of punishment an earthly judge could out. They could be concerned about mob justice where they live. They could be concerned about exclusion from participation in the community. And because of that they might feel tempted to compromise on their holiness in order to avoid the potential consequences of living out the way. But Peter reminds his readers that they are exiles. They belong to a different kingdom that is of far Greater significance than their current circumstances. You know, God as Father is one of those pillars of our Christian faith. Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's prayer, "Our Father who art in heaven." But that fatherhood should not be presumed upon. Just because we are God's children, we should not let familiarity with Him be taken for granted. The most appropriate response to God the Father is reverent fear and obedience to him. Fear of God the Father is of higher importance than fear of earthly punishments and rewards. Earthly consequences, no matter how terrible or enticing they may appear, are of little consideration when compared to the consequences of God the Father's completely impartial judgment. Perhaps it's easier to draw encouragement from that and understand this better when you're directly persecuted. But I don't think we should fall into the trap of thinking that this doesn't apply to us nice and safe in our liberal, Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic society. I think Peter's encouragement to us would be that the benefits accrued because of our society are of no meaning when compared to the reward we expect to receive in Jesus that inheritance thought up in heaven for you that we talked about last week handed to us by God the Father the impartial judge actively seeking the rewards of this world above heavenly reward could be just as dangerous to us as Christians as it would be seeking to avoid persecutions as a result of being a Christian. Reverential awe of God, God, though, is not just about some future judgment that's going to happen at some point in time. A a deep gratitude and a wonder for what he has done for us is part of that reverential awe right now in the present. It's not just about future risk and reward. And so in verse 18, Peter reminds us what the gospel has already taught us about our present situation you know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors not with perishable things like silver or gold but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without defect or blemish now to think that our western educated industrialized rich and democratic society is the best It's not a particularly uh, British trait, but of course we do know that our society is genuinely the best, right? Because we are without a doubt the pinnacle of progressiveness and success. We are a peaceful society, not an immoral one like those governed by Middle Eastern sheiks and Eastern European dictators and corrupt tribal warlords. We care about the environment and sustainability, and we care about justice, and we care about the poor, and we care about doing the right thing. We value diversity and equality and place a high value on human life. We are surely just the best, right? And we're the best because of the greatness inherited from our forebears, the incredible things they did. But we built on them and we made them even better. That greatness of being the most pollutant, blackened, coal-burning, steel-smelting, smog-covered, atmosphere-destroying nation in all of history. The greatness of stealing and shipping human beings and their tens of thousands in the most inhumane conditions to different continents, to slave in the hot sun, to produce goods for our enjoyment not 250 years ago. The greatness of subjugating one-third of the earth's surface and its people and taking their natural resources for our own. All of that was done in the belief by our ancestors that they were civilized, smarter, and more progressive, and more in tune with their surroundings than anyone else. They thought they were the best. And no doubt, there are certain aspects of religious belief and ethics and culture and philosophy and living standards and social norms in our society's past that would be pleasing to God. No doubt, there are certain aspects of religious belief and ethics and culture and philosophy and living standards and social norms in our societies present that would be pleasing to God. But I'm quite happy to prophesy, to predict, that if Christ is not worth return in 100 years' time, the descendants of our current society will look back on the barbarism of our day with horror, grateful that they've been able to build on and improve and knowing that they are now the best. (laughs) Beliefs, ethics, thoughts, philosophies, cultural norms change over time, building on ways inherited from our ancestors, and Peter calls them futile ways, and we need to be rescued from them. Peter uses the word ransom rather than rescue. The idea here is of somebody may be forced to sell themselves into slavery because of uh, poverty only to be redeemed by a wealthy benefactor. It's an idea that would have been well understood in the first century. Uh, in a Roman context, slaves would often have to, uh, would often scrimp and save and gather together funds over a long period of time in order to be able to purchase their freedom or their families would gather together silver and gold, seeking to buy back relatives that had been lost to them. It was a normal and vital part of Roman culture. It's also a metaphor that, the, that would be understood in a Jewish culture. If you think of the Exodus narrative, whereby a whole people had been reduced to slavery in Egypt, only to be redeemed in a miraculous way by God. So Peter is drawing on these ideas to relate them back to the present condition of his readers. The religious beliefs, ethics, culture, philosophy, living standards and social norms of the culture they were in might appear attractive to them. However, these are the very things that are holding them in slavery from which they need to be ransomed. A key aspect of the gospel is to call out that the way of life in society, wherever people live, is not the way. In fact, our way of life can be the very thing that keeps us bound. It's a trap. And springing us from that trap is costly. Ransoming us from slavery comes with an extravagant price tag. I mentioned before that I was from South Africa. I grew up in Johannesburg. Uh, The Zulu name for Johannesburg is Egoli. It literally means place of gold. Our local theme park was called Gold Reef City. In South Africa, gold was critical to the national economy. And so even from primary school, we were taught about uh, the glorious wonders of gold and how it was mined just part of how we were brought up we lived in it, we breathed it we were taught about how precious gold was we were taught about how unlike other metals and other materials it doesn't tarnish or fade or rust we were taught that it was imperishable and it's that imperishableness that gives metals like gold and silver their great value yet with enough pressure and heat applied you can destroy even silver and gold so the cost of our ransom required something precious, something truly imperishable. Just as the redemption of the Israelites in the Exodus story happens via the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb, our redemption happens through Christ's sacrifice. Christ perished and shed his blood as an imperishable ransom, an irrevocable, permanent, unalterable secure, eternal, irreversible, imperishable outcome. Your life is worth more than anything you can purchase with worldly, perishable wealth. The only thing valuable enough to redeem your life is the precious blood of the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God. Verse 20. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. You know, Christ's redemptive sacrifice on the cross wasn't like some sort of sad accident that happened that God then turned towards our good. This ransom was planned before the world even existed. If you note in there, it talks about Christ being revealed. That means he was always there. He pre-existed creation. Jesus pre-existed his birth and resurrected. He continues to exist. And God knew Christ as Redeemer before the foundation of the world. Long before the fall of man, the corruption of sin, he had made possible a plan for the redemption of the whole of creation. Verse 21 Through him you have come to trust in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are set on God. You know, God takes the initiative so that we can come to trust in and commit ourselves to him. That commitment toward God is specifically because of God raising Jesus from the dead and giving him glory. Don't forget that the original readers of this are persecuted Christians who could suffer literally death as a result of where they were living and if God can raise even the dead what an encouragement that must be no matter how shamed we might be in the present age even to the point of death our God is able to raise us up and bring us into his glory verse 22 it says now that you've been sorry, now that you have purified your souls by obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love. Love one another deeply from the heart. Purification is an idea kind of rooted in Old Testament rituals. This idea that kind of cleanness was a prerequisite for the appropriate approach and worship of God. In the Old Testament, purification is a physical act undertaken By the worshipper. So, does this imply that there is some sort of act of obedience, something that must be done in order to purify our souls? Well, kind of yes and no. You see, in the New Testament, the sentiment behind purification is one of internal purification rather than the external purification that we see in the Old Testament. And purification for us comes about as a result of commitment to Christ. That repentance or turning away and renouncing sin, that uh, baptism in obedience to Jesus Christ's word. So yes, there is a participation from us by becoming obedient to Christ, but it is not us who do the purification. In the Old Testament, you had to purify yourself in order to approach the Lord. In this last stage, we approach the the Lord through Christ and are purified in the process not because of what we have done but because of what Christ has done. And it turns out that act of becoming obedient to the truth and going through that purification process has an amazing secondary impact, a wonderful side effect. Sincere love for our fellow Christians. Thank you, Phil, for your, your word earlier. Turning from God moves us from the world and into the kingdom of God, and we, that automatically makes us part of a global fellowship, a brotherhood, if you like, called the church. Brotherhood and sisterhood, uh, generic gender terms in use at all times. You are not alone. You are part of something bigger and more significant. It's this is a very twee analogy, but it's a bit like if you're out and about in the street and you see somebody wearing a T-shirt from a concert you were at. And even if you've never met that person, you know that there's something special shared between the two of you. But it's so much more than that. There are people in every nation on earth that you have immediate affinity with simply because they too have purified their souls by obedience to the truth. You are closer to and have more in common with an Inuit tribesman living in an igloo in northern Alaska who loves Jesus than you do with your workmates and schoolmates who live here, watch the same TV shows, wear the same fashion, and vote in the same way that you do, but do not share in the same hope that you do. If you've ever traveled anywhere and met other Christians, you know what I'm talking about. You know it to be truth. However, just having that love for one another isn't enough. That love needs to be exercised. And so Peter issues the command to love one another deeply from the heart. That means to get involved with our fellow Christians. That means to step into one another's lives. It means to actively engage. Here's a question to ponder. Whose life in this community... Are you and your household actively making a difference in, outside of your own family? Or are you so completely consumed with your own needs and hurts and disappointments and busy lives that you've forgotten to exercise deep love for one another? Peter doesn't seem concerned with whether you're in a good place at the moment or not. No love one another deeply oh but I just need to focus on my own needs for a little while yeah do that but while you're doing that love one another deeply I'd like to do that but I'm new in the church and I don't really know anybody well we've got a community time get up and introduce yourself to somebody and love them deeply oh but people don't open up to me in the same way well have you asked them ask them and then love them deeply Has anyone here had a disappointment this week? Stick up your hand. Don't be shy. We're all family here. Keep your hands up. Just Lucy. Everyone else is having an amazing week. <laughs> keep, keep, keep your hands up if you've had a disappointment this week. Look around people. There is a whole room full of people with their hands up who could do with some love from you. Pick one go and love them deeply today and if you've got your hand up don't wait around for someone to come to you go and find somebody love them deeply (laughs) whose life in this community are you and your household actively making a difference in who is feeling deeply loved by you build on that genuine mutual love that is already in you as a believer to love your fellow believers deeply exercise it it's like a muscle if you don't use it it'll wither away some of you might remember a few years ago I broke my foot I was in a boot for some time uh, seven weeks if you think I've got skinny calves now you should have seen my left leg after doing nothing for just seven weeks you are missing opportunities to love one another deeply. Don't do that. Your calves are shrinking. Some translations say to love fervently. That's not something passive. It's got an intensity about it. So let me ask again, whose life in this community are you, and your household actively making a difference in. Who is feeling deeply loved by you? Love for one another is a central concern of Peter, of Jesus, of the whole thrust of the New Testament. And if you have purified your soul by obedience to the truth, in other words, you're a Christian, you have genuine mutual love. And if you have genuine mutual love, it is no burden To love one another deeply and fervently with a genuine and sincere heart. Don't miss out on what God has for you by leaving here today without finding an opportunity to love someone in this community deeply. Verse 23. You have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. That deep love we have for one another is not something that we have to grind out. It's grounded in a new life. God has not merely rescued us or ransomed us. He's brought about something entirely new in us. We don't just benefit from redemption, but from complete regeneration. God is the creator. He is the life giver. We can see that in the beginning when he creates the world through his word. And in the New Testament, we see him creating new life in Christian believers through his word. An imperishable word. In a gospel-centered view of the world, Apparently imperishable things like silver and gold are perishable and apparently perishable things like the human body become imperishable, capable of being raised from the dead all because of the good news of the gospel. That new life that we have is greater, is bigger than, is more real than real life. We all know that real life will come to an end. It appears that the greatest fear in the real world is that someone might die. The futile ways inherited from our ancestors would have us believe that death is the worst possible thing that can happen to someone. Death is the thing to be avoided at all costs. In the futile ways of the world, it is only when life is ended that hope comes to an end. There is hope for as long as you're alive. If you've got a disease, you might be cured. If you're lonely, you might find a friend. If you're bored, you might find something to entertain you. If you've got hard work, you might find a holiday rest at some point. There's always hope until you die. In other words, outside of Christ, there is only hope for as long as you're alive. But as Christians, we don't experience hope in the same way, and so we don't see death. In the same way, the reason we hope in this life is because we know for certain that disease and loneliness and boredom and tiredness and injustice have all been overcome, and will be overcome at the end of this age. That doesn't mean we accept our lot and we just give up and we sit there waiting for for death. If we're suffering from disease or loneliness or boredom or hard work or injustice, we hope for the same things that non-believers hope for. But we have a living hope. One that overrides all other hopes and fears. We don't fear death in the same way because it holds less menace for us. But neither do we seek it as an escape. Because we know that Christ redeemed us and regenerated us in this life. And if God thought we were redeeming in this life, just think what value he must place on our lives. So we inside the church cherish and value human life far more than those outside the church. But we do it from a positive, life-affirming perspective rather than from a negative, death-avoiding perspective. We value life because we have purified our souls through obedience to the truth, not because we fear death. The bodies we were born with on this earth will perish, but we will be raised from the dead because we've been born anew of the imperishable seed through the word of God. Note that that word of God is described as being enduring. Other words you might use would be living or life-giving or creative or effective. In other words... Being born anew is not just a one-off thing that happened. It's a continuing, ongoing thing that happens in us. We have a firm foundation to build on that is not dependent on our circumstances. God doesn't give up because there's a cost of living crisis or a war on European soil and your family is a mess. And you're under pressure to compromise on your Christian beliefs. No, his word Endures. It's always there whether you like it or not, want it or not, or take advantage of it or not. If you need something to lean on because you're struggling, yes, you can and should expect your fellow Christians to reach out and love you deeply. But even if your fellow Christians let you down, and they should not and must not, you have something far greater to lean on. A hope that goes beyond hope. So, as we head out from here this morning, as strangers, exiles, foreigners, as pilgrims in a strange land, don't forget what He has done, is doing, and will do in bringing new life. Don't neglect to find an opportunity to love one another deeply this week.